industrial hemp be Wisconsin's next huge cash crop? Senator Patrick Testin believes so. The Stevens Point Republican led legislation that created the state's hemp pilot program, and he has said the Badger State could become the industrial hemp state within a decade. Senator Testin joins us on this edition of MacGyver Newsmakers. Good afternoon. Great to be on. Well, glad to have you here. Uh, there's much to talk about, including our fabulous segment that we like to call Five Fast Questions, <laughs> which we will get to at the end. It's something that, uh, of course, uh, we do with uh, every one of our newsmakers to get our, uh, to know our newsmakers a little bit better. And we're going to talk about uh, the big issues of the day. I want to get into the budget, of course, and I want to get into uh, some elements of health care as well, uh, given your experience on uh, uh, the committee there, but I want to begin with the hemp bill. We have now, you know, a couple of years of experience where we thought this was going to go, and now we have arrived. And where we are today is the fact that we have what over in the first run, the first year, 240 uh, applicants who signed up to grow industrial hemp. Weather didn't help us out much in, in 2018, but uh, you still stand by uh, what you said uh, a while back, that Wisconsin could be an industrial hemp leader. I think we are well on our way. So in year one of our industrial hemp pilot program that was made possible through Act 100, we had over 250 uh, growers apply to the state, and we had over 100 processors apply. Uh, in year two, we have grown this pro program sixfold. Over 1,400 new applications for growers have been filed to the state and over 700 new processors. So obviously, it is clear that Wisconsin farmers and growers are ready to lead this nation again in industrial hemp. So I'm incredibly encouraged. And I think why we saw some of the major growth that we did from year one to year two were the changes that were made within the 2018 farm bill that was signed into law by President Trump, which sure removed hemp as a controlled substance. It allowed for the interstate commerce. And so that's really opened up the, the door for individuals who were kind of on the fence in year one. So we are well on our way to uh, ensure that Wisconsin's gonna be a leader in this. And that's why we have been working so diligently with Farm Bureau, um, with the Department of Agriculture and a number of other stakeholders to um, do trailer legislation on what we are calling hemp 2.0 that is gonna help put us in line with the changes that were made at the federal level, but more importantly, taking what we learned in year one of the program from both growers, processors, and the department to make this program um, more user-friendly, and so that way we can continue to grow this industry organically and uh, help our farmers out. These have been difficult times on the farm here in Wisconsin, dairy prices being what they are. Lost 700 dairy farms last year alone just uh, very difficult in your district, you know that as well as anybody, is hemp industrialization, hemp production, is it possible that uh, that could make up for some of the difficulties some of our farmers are facing? Not all of them certainly, but some. I, I think it can definitely help. As you just mentioned, last year was an extremely tough year for our dairy farmers with low commodity prices, with a tough market out there. Uh, we lost a lot, and I think in the last 15 years, we've lost about 49% of our dairy operations here in the state. So dairy has struggled, even though they continue to produce, and, and I think last year alone was over $44 billion into our egg industry. We see this as an opportunity to, for them to incorporate this into their portfolio within their crop rotation. 
that uh, it should be able to help them raise their margins. There's a lot of interest out there for um, hemp-derived products from CBD mm-hmm. to the fiber that this this could really help them out quite a bit. Yeah, the marketplace is certainly <laughs> shifting in that direction. I think uh, within the next three months, CBD locations will be like Starbucks just about on every corner, like every coffee shop out there. The popularity of this product, and thanks to the decision by the uh, former attorney general opened the way, and as you noted, some of the changes at the federal level in industrial hemp, this is becoming a burgeoning marketplace. Let's transition to another proposal from the governor. Uh, and that proposal would legalize medicinal marijuana. It would also decriminalize small amounts of marijuana possession and sales. Uh, are you at all concerned, first of all, that that idea will get thrown into the industrial hemp side of things, even though industrial hemp, there, there are none of the components to its THC-laden cousin, marijuana? Yeah, and I, I think that's always going to be the, the biggest hurdle that we have to overcome when we tr- discuss hemp, is trying to keep it as far away as possible from any discussions related to marijuana. Even though they are similar, they look the same, they smell the same, but genetically, they're different. They, hemp does not have the THC concentration high enough to cause a psychoactive high. It cannot be more than 0.3% THC concentration. So even when we introduced um, the original bill, industrial hemp bill back in 2017, our biggest hurdle was trying to educate our legislative colleagues that this is not marijuana, this is not the slippery slope. So um, we have done a pretty good job to try and thread the needle to keep those two separate spheres. That's a whole different discussion as whether or not we want to approach medical or decriminalize. Right now the emphasis is on we need to get our industrial hemp bill uh, 2.0 done to provide some clarity and certainty for um, people enrolled within within the program currently. State Senator Patrick Teston joins us in this edition of MacGyver Newsmakers. Again, let's uh, be uh, let's go to the specifics on um, this legislation, this new next generation of legislation. What is it that you want to accomplish ultimately, knowing where you have come from, where you are today? Well, first and foremost, I mean, a lot of it, we're just trying to put ourselves in line with the changes at the federal level. So Mm -hmm. the feds, for instance, they changed the definition of hemp. Uh, Under statutes, it was listed as industrial hemp. Now it's just listed as hemp. Um, So they clarified a lot of different things for us. But our ultimate goal for, for this legislation is to allow anyone who grows, who produces, who manufactures, who sells it, to give them the maximum amount of freedom and um, ability to utilize every component legally of this plant. And I think that in itself is going to lend itself to ample opportunity for new industry to come into the state. I have had some describe the reintroduction of hemp into the state of Wisconsin as the reintroduction of uh, potatoes or cranberries to the state, that this could be a real specialty crop that Wisconsin can lead the way in. Mm. Very interesting. And as we talked about before, when you have uh, an agriculture sector that has been hit so hard, alternative crops are certainly something to explore for farmers trying to make ends meet, certainly. Final question on that, and it goes back to the governor's proposals on uh, legalization of uh, medicinal marijuana and uh, small amounts at this point on the pathway, it would appear, to full legalization. Do you ever see a time in this state where you're going to see acres of hemp 
what has been referred to as industrial hemp, right next to that cousin that uh, is laden with THC in a legal growing field. I think you're a ways away, but more importantly, in states where they have both allowed uh, the growth of hemp and marijuana, states like, for instance, out in Oregon, they've actually um, put in statute, you cannot grow hemp within so many um, in certain distances away from a marijuana grow operation. Mm-hmm. The problem because the problem is that the plants will cross-pollinate to the point where the THC concentration gets diluted. And so um, I, I don't foresee that happening. That's primarily one of the reasons why within the legislation that we wrote originally in relation to hemp was why we provided the, the GPS coordinates where the plants are going to be grown because there were some concerns that were echoed from members of the law enforcement community that well, people are just going to grow marijuana inside a hemp field. Now, they could certainly try. It's not going to yield the best results, but that's why we had to incorporate some of those safeguards within the original bill and, and, and to make sure that we had buy-in from, from law enforcement. So the, what you're saying is the, the tokers, the smokers, the midnight tokers, if you will, uh, and the jokers, they would, have, <laughs> they would potentially have an issue because it would leach out the THC and, and dilute the product that they are trying to sell. Correct. Which is yeah. now illegal, but they <laughs> hope it will be legal someday. Just, just like when, um, you know, when we had one-on-one conversations with colleagues on, on the hemp bill, the, the question was, well, how much, would it, how much would you have to smoke to get high off of it? <laughs> And That's a point. curious question coming from college <laughs> kids, by the way. Hey, fellas, it's not going to work. No. And uh, talking with some of our colleagues, it was like, well, you'd have to smoke an entire field of the sort of telephone pole of hemp, <laughs> and you're still not going to get high, but tell you what, you're going to have a really bad headache, and you're going to be coughing for the next week and a half, so I wouldn't recommend it. Back to the banana peels, kids. That's, I suppose, the, uh, the argument there. Let's turn our attention to, I want to stay on, on farming, because it's something you and I talked about on the radio. Uh, not too long ago, MacGyver News Service just put out a, a piece on this uh, with uh, s- some enlightening information, I think, from the Legislative Fiscal Bureau on the impact that Governor Evers' proposed tax increase or rollback of the Manufacturing and Agriculture Tax Credit would have indirectly on farmers. Now, again, it has been stated by the governor and his supporters, hey, we're not touching farming in in rolling back this uh, very popular credit that has led to the creation, coincidentally, of over 40,000 good-paying jobs in the state in the manufacturing sector. But it's pretty clear that 25% of those receiving this tax credit in 2018 alone were directly, integrally tied to farmers. And we're talking about food processors, food manufacturers, this could have a very significant impact. What are you hearing in your district? Hearing just that, there's still major concern with what's been proposed, and and this is probably one of the biggest disappointments that we've had early on in the session. So, you know, tax cuts, middle income class class middle income class tax cuts was an issue that both Republicans and the new administration agreed upon. We had a different approach where ours was fully funded. It was a simple plan that we were going to use the surplus that was used from reforms that have accumulated um, a lot of success in our in our state finances and give it back to the taxpayers because ultimately it is their money. The governor took a different approach. 
He's put out a plan that one is not fully funded, it falls short by over $400 million, and yet it still is going to be put on the backs of our farmers and manufacturers. And for instance, the cranberry industry within, within my district, it's pretty big. I think I have the most cranberry producers in my district out of any other district in the state. And they said one of their chief concerns is with what's proposed right now in the governor's budget is that they have some members who fall in both camps that are both considered manufacturers and considered farmers. Mm -hmm. And that's the biggest problem right now with what, how it's laid out is because agriculture and manufacturing, they are linked together. Yeah. They are one and the same in my respect. And so while the governor claims he wants to cut taxes for some, well, his proposal actually raised taxes on the very same people he's trying to cut taxes for. So when you take a look at what's out there, it's nothing more than a shell game. Mm -hmm. And that's why I was really disheartened by what he's proposed, because I think there's a major disconnect right now within the administration on just how detrimental this is going to be for our egg industry. And I don't think we're going to go down that road. It's just not a feasible position from my standpoint that we are going to raise taxes on farmers and manufacturers when our economy is the strongest it has ever been. Yeah, and if you want to run the risk of diminishing that robust economy, a lot of folks who have uh, a lot more economic sense than I do will tell you that it's pretty naive to think that if you roll back or you raise taxes on the manufacturing sector, that that won't have an adverse impact downstream on farmers. Well, we've also been told that over a billion dollars in, in new taxes is just a slight increase. I was going to so. ask you about that, as a matter of fact, and I want, you, I want your response to this, to talk a little bit about it, uh, because I think that's very interesting. We're talking with State Senator Patrick Teston, Republican Stevens Point, on this edition of MacGyver New Newsmakers. And that was an interesting description that the governor offered recently when asked about his campaign pledge when he said late in the campaign within days of the election I didn't plan to raise taxes well now we find out from his budget we're looking at about 1.3 billion dollars in taxes and the governor describes that as a small amount of taxes uh, going up uh, 1.3 billion dollars to me is still a lot of money how about you that, that is a ton of money. But more importantly, this just goes to show that we are seeing two different versions of Tony Evers. There was the campaign version of Tony Evers where he campaigned on tax cuts. He wasn't going to raise taxes. But then now we see Tony Evers as Governor Evers. Now that he has to govern the state, we see a vastly different um, individual than the one that was out on the campaign trail, where now tax increases of $1.3 billion are seen as a slight increase. Now. I don't profess to be a mathematician, but 1.3 billion is a heck of a lot more than zero. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is a major flip-flop on, on, his, on his part, and now it's going to be incumbent upon the legislature to hold the line, that we are not going to allow this reckless amount of new taxes to go through, which is going to impact our state's economy. Well, you don't claim to be a mathematician. I don't either, but I also didn't lead the Department of Public Instruction, where <laughs> math should be a pretty significant consideration. All right, let's turn our attention to the governor's budget on health care. This is something that obviously you are very involved in with your committee work and what you do in the Senate. Medicaid expansion. Uh, the governor was out this week again uh, across the state heralding his budget that would take all of this, and we put the air quotes around it, the free money and the Medicaid expansion, 
But uh, no matter how you slice it, there's going to be an impact. Somebody's going to have to pay for all that free money. Where does the Medicaid expansion stand in the legislature at this point? Well, you have heard and you're going to continue to hear from folks on a wide range of different opinions on, on Medicaid expansion from, heck yes, this is the greatest thing ever, we should do this, to absolutely not, it's never going to happen. I will give credit where credit is due. Um, one of the concerns that I had when um, the governor discussed Medicaid expansion, I was worried that not all the money would go directly towards health care because there have been some down in the Capitol who have used the Medicaid expansion argument to do everything from uh, nonpartisan redistricting reform to education to fix our transportation. I mean, it was kind of the silver bullet for all these various little pet projects. At least the governor has allocated Medicaid expansion dollars directly towards health care. Now, where I disagree with him on is the approach. So he wants to take roughly $320 million from the feds to expand Medicaid to try and target a population of roughly 80,000 individuals mm -hmm. that would qualify under the new eligibility of 138% above the federal poverty level. When you do that, under the way it's currently written, you're going to take about 44,000 people who are on private insurance and put them on the government-run health care. Right. And given the fact that our reimbursement rates are as low as they are, that is going to put an increased strain on our health care system. Not only that, the cost to continue, I've seen estimates that it'll, the cost to continue Medicaid expansion, as currently written in the governor's budget, will cost the state $600 million annually. I don't think we can afford it. Now, I do think there are some alternatives that might be worth taking a look at. So, for instance, states like Arkansas back in 2014 used the 1115 Medicaid waivers to ex take the Medicaid expansion. Now, unlike just raising the eligibility rates, what they did, they used their plan to put people on private insurance. And by all accounts, they haven't faced some of the pitfalls that other states have faced, like Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana that have taken the full Medicaid expansion. And the approach that they, t they took, it's actually put about 300,000 people onto the private insurance marketplace. So I think that could be a potential option to pursue. Now, for some reason, the legislative appetite is on the range of, heck no, it's never going to happen. I do think we should at least take a look at what we can do to help with the reimbursement rates to increase access and to get more healthcare professionals out into the communities to, to service these people trying to see if there's a way or an avenue to take the Medicaid surplus to either do to get reimbursement rates up across the board or to do them targeted. So I'm looking forward to having this discussion over the next um, several months, but the way the governor currently has it laid out, it's a non-starter. Just a quick uh, follow-up question to that. You mentioned some very good points, but there's one other consideration, and I think my colleague, uh, young Mr. Chris Rochester, pointed it out in a recent uh, analysis on this, and just because he's a Star Trek fan doesn't diminish his expertise when it comes to medical assistance programs. Uh, but he noted that this also creates another layer of dependency on the government. When you take 40,000 plus people, as you mentioned, who are on private insurance, who are working, and that is part of what they do, that is part of their benefits package. Now you put them on government-run health insurance, you create another layer of dependency as opposed to independence, and that is 
anathema of everything that is conservative free market value. Absolutely. And the other component that hasn't really been discussed a lot in the public, at least from what I've seen, is that they also repeal the work requirements for, for this program. And I think universally, when you talk to people outside of this building, and it doesn't matter if they're a Republican or a Democrat, most of them will be able to tell you straight-faced, I believe if you're on some sort of assistance, you should be looking for work. Especially right now in our state where our, one of our biggest issues is that we can't find enough bodies to fill the over 95,000 jobs that are available in this state. I think that's the wrong approach to take. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens. As I said before, uh, the battle over the budget has truly begun. Now it's in the Joint Finance Committee's hands and we'll see what goes uh, on there. I think we're safe in saying this is going to be a prolonged um, debate. <laughs> J July 1. <laughs> July 1. <laughs> I'm an optimistic guy. Oh, good. Let's see your brackets now as we turn our attention uh, real quickly. And it's uh, by design. We call it Five Fast Questions. And Senator Patrick Teston is our latest victim. I mean, uh, <laughs> participant in Five Fast Questions. Let me ask you this. And this is maybe, maybe we'll call it Six Fast Questions today because it's a bonus question. Do you have the March Madness? Do I have what? Do you have the March Madness? I... I sadly do not. I will fill out my bracket probably tonight, but I usually don't follow until the day the day of the tournament starts. Okay, well, we're getting there. We're getting there. <laughs> so this is a five fast questions, March Madness theme. All questions this related is to the NCAA bad. basketball tournament. <laughs> All right, here we go. Question number one. What the hell is a billiken? I have no idea. It is a mythical good luck figure who represents things as they ought to be like me in size 32 pants. <laughs> it's also the mascot for St. Louis University Billikens. They are 13th seed in taking on the fourth seeded Virginia Tech Hokies. We will not ask you what a Hokie is, although they're in Virginia, so it, perhaps it's fitting. Number two, has anyone ever described you as a bracket buster? I would say so. I think my, my election in 2016 was considered a bracket buster for some down here in Madison. Very good. Maybe <laughs> like an eighth seat or a seventh seat, taking it all the way. You got it. Who are the legislature's 16 seeds? Who are the last four out? Oh, boy. <laughs> boy, that is, a, that is a dangerous question. It really is. <laughs> oh, boy. The legislature's last four. We'll give you an opportunity to pass on this. I, you know what? Out of deference to my legislative colleagues, I am, uh, I'm going to take a hard pass. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, we'll call that an assist from your host. <laughs> uh, was there ever a moment in Senate floor debate that you grew so incensed that you considered throwing a chair like the late, great Bobby Knight? Uh, no. Okay. Fair enough. Also, for the record, Bobby Knight's not dead. <laughs> His career, maybe, but not... Bobby himself. Number five, final question for you. Call it the final five. Have you ever hummed or whistled one shining moment while using the restroom? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure I have. You do realize that we're going to have to play one shining moment as we ask that question. <laughs> I, I hope that uh, you're good with that. That's it. That's really all it is. Five fast questions. Great. Not a lot of thought behind them. Not a lot of thought you have to answer about because, again, not a lot of thought behind them. Thanks so much for your time. Wish Absolutely. you the best of luck as you move forward. Again, the session going to be an interesting one. And yes, it is. We'll keep following. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bet. That is Senator Patrick Testa, Republican from Stevens Point.
and a bracket buster at that. He's our guest this edition of MacGyver Newsmakers. I'm Matt Kittle. Time is short, and the road is long, in the blinking of an eye, that moment's gone, and when it's done.